Jeremy Corbyn's election to lead the Labour Party of the UK in 2015 sent shockwaves through world politics. A lifelong socialist and opponent of war and empire, Corbyn was unacceptable to political elites not only on the right wing, but within the Labour Party itself. Shortly after he became leader, a massive years-long smear campaign was launched to convince the public that Corbyn and his supporters were anti-Semitic. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm Walter Smolarik, sitting in for Brian Becker, who's traveling. If you enjoy or rely on this show or both, please show your support by subscribing to our show on patreon.com slash The Socialist Program. Today, we're talking with investigative journalist Asa Winstanley, who writes for the Electronic Intifada and on Substack at asawinstanley.substack.com. He is the author of the new book, Weaponizing Anti-Semitism, How the Israel Lobby Brought Down Jeremy Corbyn, which you can buy from orbooks at orbooks.com. Well, Asa, glad to have you on the show. The book that you wrote reviewed this very you know, harrowing period in British politics that began with the election of Jeremy Corbyn as the leader of the Labour Party, one of the two principal parties in the UK. If you would just help our, our listeners understand what a, what a huge political earthquake this was. I mean, why was this such a huge shock to the political establishment? Yeah, great to be with you, Walter. Yeah, I mean, I think for U.S. audiences, a comparable change would be, let's say, Bernie Sanders becoming the leader of the Democratic Party. I mean, I suppose there's there's differences and there's similarities, right? Because in the UK, we have a, obviously we have a parliamentary system and the political parties work differently. And the Labour Party is a parliamentary party and it has a formal leader who you know has a certain role within the party rather than just a generalized leadership role and a candidate obviously we don't have a president we don't have an elected head of leadership but yeah i mean it would be akin to something like you know perhaps be more like mike graval becoming <laughs> the democratic nominee for president for example something like that because uh corbyn was certainly to the left of bernie sanders and particularly on international issues. So, yeah, it was an absolutely a political earthquake. And what happened was that the only reason it was able to happen was because of people power, because they loosened the rules of who could vote in the Labour Party's internal elections. And they gave members and supporters of the Labour Party more say in who elected the leader. Whereas before 2015, it had been more weighted towards MPs and other vested interests within the Labour Party had the final say over who was the leader. But in 2015, the rules had been changed. And ironically, the plan was for these rule changes was for really to turn the party more towards the right 
that it would become go back to more being a Blairite party, to breaking the link with the trade unions and so forth. But it didn't work out that way. And around about 200,000 people entered the Labour Party or re-entered the Labour Party, many young people, but also many older veterans of the Labour Party, more left-wing people who had left during the Tony Blair years. Tony Blair, the former Labour Prime Minister, who was really a, a neoliberal, who was very akin to, and really was a political ally of Bill Clinton in a lot of ways. Because all these people entered or re-entered the Labour Party, there was a kind of mass movement which managed to change things and get Jeremy Corbyn in place as the leader of the Labour Party. And this really wasn't expected. It wasn't really expected by Jeremy Corbyn himself, right? He was essentially running to make a point to kind of hopefully try and just to have a a left-wing candidate basically on the ballot because there'd been several Labour leadership elections over the years where there'd at least been a left-wing option, although they usually came last. The hope initially was that Corbyn would shift the debate in the press and on TV about the Labour Party leadership to the left, that they would talk about things like renationalisation of railways and and so forth, things like that, more traditionally socialist policies. But there was this kind of political earthquake and upset, and it really meant that the entire British establishment kind of went mad and went into overdrive for the next four years, really. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the parallels with what happened with Bernie Sanders are certainly present there. I mean, mm. like what you just said, right? I mean, I, I don't think that Bernie Sanders really expected to take off in the way that he did either. And mm. and I think that the, the initial logic behind his campaign was was very similar. But, but I, I also agree with the point that you're making about the differences in international politics, you know, Jeremy Corbyn being a, a lifelong, you know, principled, what, what we on the left might call an anti-imperialist, right? Somebody yeah. who has a, a clear political and ideological commitment to that. And part of that is support for the Palestinian cause. Could you talk a little bit about Jeremy Corbyn's history on that front? Yeah. So one of the images that was very popular on social media of Jeremy Corbyn during, especially during the leadership campaigns was from the 1980s when, and it was of Corbyn wearing a sign around his neck, a sort of billboard kind of sign, saying something along the lines of, speak out against apartheid, join this picket, support the right to protest. So he was protesting the South African apartheid regime, the white supremacist regime that ruled South Africa at the time, at the South African embassy in London. And in the photo, he's being dragged away by police. And so the contrast was between all these career politicians, these people in suits who essentially saw the Labour Party as a a route to to a lifelong career, A, but also to being part of the ruling elite and to maintaining the status quo, to somebody who wanted to change the status quo and had made a lot of sacrifices over the years towards doing that. My political upbringing, you know, when I was in my early 20s, was getting involved in the anti-war movement. And to me and to a lot of people of my generation at the time, in the early 2000s, mid-2000s, you know, the dawn of the so-called war on terror years, to me and many others at the time, the Labour Party, run by Tony Blair at the time, was the war party. You know, it was the party that took Britain into the war against Afghanistan, the war against Iraq. And, you know, it was 
Tony Blair's support was crucial because, of course, George W. Bush, the president of the US at the time, was isolated around the world in a lot of ways. And his support for, you know, even France at the time, you know, was ruled by quite conservative in a lot of ways president. Even they didn't want to get involved. And so, you know, this support from Tony Blair was very important. And for a lot of us at the time, the Labour Party was the war party. But there would always be, at our demonstrations, there would always be a few people from the Labour Party. And I mean a few MPs. And obviously, among the mass movements, there'd be all kinds of people there. You know, there was two million people at the height of the demonstrations in London and around the UK. So it was massive mass movement in that way. But in terms of the leading voices, in terms of the people who spoke on the platform, there would always be just a small group of Labour MPs who were kind of dissidents within their party and what are known in British political culture as backbenchers because they sit on the the back, literal backbenches in Parliament because the front benches are for the the ministers and the shadow ministers. But you would have these kind of gadflies to the Labour Party leadership, the Labour Party government from within their own party, people on the backbenches, and there would be a few of them, and there would be, it would be people like Jeremy Corbyn and his, a few of his colleagues like Diane Abbott, the first black woman to be elected to Parliament, John McDonnell, and a couple of others. And, you know, those were the people, Jeremy Corbyn especially, was sort of viewed as like the um, one of the nicknames or one of the terms that went around was the foreign minister of the left. And he, you know, when Tony Blair was leading the country into a war against Iraq, Jeremy Corbyn was speaking from the platform in Hyde Park, speaking out against the war. He was at the meetings organising the protests. You know, he was at the rallies building the protests for weeks in advance. He was one of the founding supporters of the Stop the War Coalition and so forth. And of course, in all of this, he was also a supporter of the Palestine Solidarity Campaign and the Palestine Solidarity Movement in general. And, you know, he was someone who'd, who's been to Palestine, occupied Palestine, visited many times. And he was very notable as someone who spoke at pro-Palestinian meetings in London and around the country quite a lot. And so because of that, he became a target for pro-Israel groups. So Jeremy Corbyn is elected leader. He has this long history of support for Palestine, opposition to war and empire in general. And so there's there's this shock, there's this panic in the political establishment mm. and the attack line that they end up settling on or, or one of the principal attack lines that they end up settling on is that Jeremy Corbyn and the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn within the Labour Party are anti-Semites. They hate Jewish people, and that's what's motivating their position with regards to Israel and Palestine. How did that campaign begin? Yeah, it's an interesting one because, so it started long ago in a lot of ways. It's it's not a new attack line. I mean, in the book, I trace its roots back to 1972. That was the year that the Israeli foreign minister, Abba Iban, told a conference in Israel that, quote, the new left is the author and the progenitor of the new anti-Semitism. The distinction between anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism is not a distinction at all. Anti-Zionism is merely the new anti-Semitism. And, you know, since then, in the decades since then, there's been just a whole slew of books. There's been a kind of cottage industry of this, quote-unquote, new anti-Semitism. So... 
basically Israel and its propagandists for decades have been trying to persuade us that anti-Semitism in the traditional sense of, in the classical sense of prejudice against or hatred of Jews as Jews isn't really the problem, that anti-Zionism is the problem, that opposition to Israel and its crimes against the Palestinians and other people is the real problem. And this is what they call new anti-Semitism. And so there's been, I mean, I list some of them in my, in the book that there's the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League, you know, a very intensely pro-Israel organization, an organization which actually spied for the Israeli state against left-wing and Arab groups in the 70s, 80s and 90s. I had to settle out of court because there was a court case about it. And also for apartheid South Africa as well. They led this kind of spiring. But the ADL wrote this, published this book called The New Antisemitism. And there's just, you know, since then, there's been several books called The New Antisemitism or something along those lines. So they've been trying to persuade us that there's this new antisemitism, which comes not from where, you know, classical antisemitism comes from, which is overwhelmingly from the right, from the fascist right, from the conservative right, but from the left. So new antisemitism comes from the left because the left, especially from the late 60s and early 70s, the left began increasingly to oppose Israel, to oppose Zionism, its racist settler colonial ideology. And... So, you know, this campaign has quite old roots. And Jeremy Corbyn, of course, you know, he was first elected in the early 80s. He was involved in the solidarity movements and labour movement politics in the 1970s, his whole life, really. And he, you know, his political come up came up in this whole milieu of the new left, which was increasingly critical of Israel and of Zionism. And, you know, because of that, he's been targeted pretty much his whole career with this essentially smear of anti-Semitism. So before he became Labour Party leader, there were attacks against him, insinuations that he was anti-Semitic for wanting to, for example, and I get into the details of it in the book, but for wanting to investigate the way the Conservative government at the time in uh, 2011, 2012, had decided to ban a Palestinian political leader from visiting the country while he was still in the country and he had entered the country legally. This is Raad Salah, the Islamic movement leader from, he's actually a Palestinian citizen of Israel. That's just one example, you know, the the Jewish Chronicle, a very pro-Israel, anti-Palestinian newspaper in Britain, a small weekly newspaper. It's put out this article misquoting Jeremy Corbyn and claiming that he had called for an investigation of the Jewish lobby, which was completely untrue. He hadn't done that at all. He hadn't even called for an investigation of the Israel lobby, you know, which would have been legitimate and would have, you know, but he hadn't even said that, you know, he just called for an investigation of how the British government made its decision around this particular Palestinian leader at the time. And then, you know, he'd spoken at groups, obviously the Palestine Solidarity Campaign, the the biggest national solidarity group in Britain in terms of the Palestinian liberation struggle. He's spoken at their events quite a lot. He was a patron of the group, but also other Palestinian groups. So, for example, there's a smaller organisation called the Palestinian Return Centre, which is actually run by Palestinian refugees in London. And it it's less of a 
doesn't really organize marches and demonstrations so much as i mean in a lot of ways it's kind of a, a mainstream it should be a kind of mainstream group it's quite um i want to say timid but that sounds a bit unfair on them but the you know they're a good organization they put out some really interesting campaigning material and they organize meetings in parliament and so forth and Corbyn spoke at some of their events and because of that he was attacked by anti-Palestinian activists essentially people like Jonathan Hoffman and Richard Millet you know these kinds of pro-Israel extremists really who just turn up at Palestine solidarity events and try to derail them and you know he was Jeremy Corbyn was attacked at those so as well so you know it was it was a kind of a, it was a long-running thing but it really went into overdrive when Corbyn became the leader of the Labour Party you know it became a national campaign it was in the mainstream media every day you know at certain points it would be every day you know there'd be a particular scandal and it would be the main story on all the headlines, on front pages, you know, in the nightly news bulletins in the mainstream media. Whereas before, the kinds of things I'm mentioning about Zionists turning up at his meetings and trying to derail them, those would be the kind of things that we'd just hear about in the movement or that the Jewish Chronicle would perhaps mention and misrepresent later on. But it became an, a really a national news story and uh, international in some respects. So it was, he was put under an immense amount of pressure. And yes, there was all kinds of smear tactics that were used against him. But I argue in the book that this was really the most effective because it was the one that really shattered the movement behind him. So the only way he was able to ever get to the leadership of the Labour Party in the first place was because he had this popular movement behind him, you know, and he still has a lot of supporters in the country now. But that movement was really defeated and shattered by the anti-Semitism smears more than anything else. Yeah, I mean, let's just take a moment and, and think about this argument itself, because it's something that's, you know, thrown at one point or another, basically any prominent supporter of the Palestinian people, including Jewish supporters of the Palestinian cause too. this, right. this notion that any criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. I mean, that became, of course, a huge point of debate in British society. Yeah. Talk about that debate, if you would. Yeah, I th the height of it really came probably, I would say, in 2018, as in terms of the, the summer, really, there was a whole the whole of the spring and summer of 2018. And a large part of the reason for that was because of this definition of anti-Semitism called the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition, which it's kind of a deceptive name, really, because it, they say it's international, but it's really only Israel plus a few European countries who have endorsed this thing, you know, and then the US later on, obviously. But what it constitutes is a whole series of, I mean, first of all, the, the definition of anti-Semitism that within the document is vague in itself. But the more problematic aspect of it is that it has 11 examples of anti-Semitism, quote-unquote, in it, but it inserts Israel into seven of them, which, you know, for a genuine definition of anti-Semitism, you'd think would be completely unnecessary. And one of them in particular mentions that it is anti-Semitic to deny a state of Israel its self-determination or its right to exist, something along those lines. It's essentially what it does is it makes it very difficult or at least 
makes it very, if not outlaws, then certainly makes it harder and problematic to, for example, support a one-state solution in all of historic Palestine where Palestinians and Israelis would live together in a democratic unitary state, you know. And the way it has been used and deployed in practice, the RHRA definition, is really to primarily is to chill and to scupper free speech on Palestine and to really sabotage the Palestine solidarity movement in all sorts of ways. And that's been very well documented. It's happened in the United States. It's happened in Britain, you know, in France and all kinds of places. And this this document throughout the summer of 2018, <laughs> kind of an obscure document in, in a way, the furore over it within the Labour Party, because what essentially what was happening was the Israel lobby was trying to basically foist it on the Labour Party and force the Labour Party to... They'd already adopted part of it, but they <laughs> they wanted to make sure they adopted all the examples and, and adopt it more enthusiastically, it seemed. And it was only, be- you know, all of this was only deployed because Corbyn was the leader to make it harder for him as the leader. And this, you know, it's hard to describe now, you know, five years later, just how intense this campaign was. There was a huge amount of pressure on the leadership of the Labour Party, which never really, I mean, Corbyn never really had control of the Labour Party bureaucracy. It was really adamantly opposed to him. And it was really, it, it's been well documented by now that it was actively sabotaging him. His Most of his MPs were against him. And even his closest advisers, it turns out, gave him incredibly bad advice and ended up supporting the Israel lobby in a lot of ways. And so, you know, it would go in waves as well. So you think for a time, you know, there'd be this big story, someone would be expelled or suspended from the Labour Party, a high profile supporter of Jeremy Corbyn. And then that damaged Corbyn by association. So the, the most, the biggest example of that was Ken Livingstone, the left-wing former mayor of London, who had been another one of these kind of left-wing stalwarts within the Labour Party who'd, who'd remained in the Labour Party during the Blair years and who had, you know, been a kind of uh, gadfly to the Tony Blair neoliberal warmongering leadership. Ken Livingstone even actually won the mayoralty of London without the support of the Labour Party and against the wishes of the Labour Party and, and against the official Labour Party candidate. Eventually he was kind of... Uh, they sort of came because he'd, he'd won so convincingly, the Labour Party came sort of begging back to him and readmitted him to the party. And because he had this national profile, he was one of Jeremy Corbyn's few, few supporters within the Labour Party. I wouldn't say hierarchy or establishment, but he was one of the few supporters within the Labour Party's kind of politicians who had I mean by then he was kind of he was retired as a politician but he was somebody who had a national profile he still had access to national media you know he got invited onto radio programs tv shows and he was put forward as the pro-Corbyn voice within the Labour Party and so you know because of that he had to be taken down and and he was, you know, he was essentially, he was suspended from the Labour Party and he was forced out of the Labour Party. And I have a chapter, a whole chapter in the book documenting how that happened. But there was a whole series of these people, you know, left-wing activists within the party who were supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, who were targeted and smeared in one way or another. 
And almost invariably, most of the time, it was over this issue. It was over a weaponized form of anti-Semitism. It was a manufactured and fabricated form of anti-Semitism where it was actually no anti-Semitism at all. It was criticism of Israel, criticism of Zionism, opposition to Zionism. And it was, you know, even sometimes just criticizing Israel in quite a timid manner. Yes, sometimes there were, you know, crude statements on social media, which perhaps went a bit over the top. But in 99.9% of the cases, there was no real anti-Semitism to speak of, you know. And this was a part, yes, of course, you know, in any kind of party of 500 to 600,000 people, there is going to be some cases of any kinds of prejudice. There's no doubt about that in a mass movement. And that's obviously where political education comes in and so forth. But this kind of weaponized form of anti-Semitism where opposition to Israel is sort of smeared as racism was such a powerful thing. And it meant that so many of Corbyn's supporters were driven out of the party. And by now, after Corbyn's demise, I mean, and ultimately all the, the culmination of all this was that Corbyn himself was kicked out of the party and he's now an independent MP. Yeah, I mean, one of such a, you know, a strong element of, of like unreality to this is how the opponents of Israel and supporters of Palestine are smeared as bigots, discriminatory, filled with hate, when in fact it's the political movement Zionism that was from its very foundations based on an ideological form of white supremacy. I mean, really an ideological embrace of the project of European colonialism. Yeah. I know that's something else that you deal with in, in the book, too. Yeah, so I've got a couple of historical sections on this. I've got a chapter about the Labour Zionist movement, so what is considered to be the left wing of Zionism, and showing particularly in the form of an organisation within the British Labour Party called the Jewish Labour Movement, which was really, really, it was the Israel lobby. It was a kind of defunct group. And I get into the details of all this in my book. It was a, a defunct organisation within the British Labour Party, which was revived in 2015, specifically to fight Jeremy Corbyn. And it did that quite well. It had a kind of dual strategy of trying to co-opt him on one hand and fight him on the other. And ultimately, it did a bit of both, but mostly it fought him. And I get into the history of their predecessor organization called Pilizion. And I show how, I mean, the British Labour Party, like a lot of European social democratic political parties, was an explicitly pro-imperial organization party. And it was it was very much pro-colonialism, you know, it was in favour that, you know, even some of the, the left-wing elements of that party were pro-British Empire. And not only was the Labour, British Labour Party pro-Empire in theory, but it was actually running the British Empire at certain points, you know, when Labour governments were... Even the most left-wing Labour government, the 1945 government, which came in after the Second World War on, you know, a wave of popular support on, of obviously so many of the soldiers being demobilised from the, the war and coming back and wanting a better life in Britain, a welfare state and a, a national health service, which they then got, you know, a lot of it's Britain's domestic policies from the Labour Party government of Clement Attlee were really positive in that respect domestically. But there was this kind of Labour aristocracy, you know, the classical criticisms of the British Labour Party that Lenin deployed, obviously, all were really prescient and how we have to understand the British Labour Party because 
it operated and it ran the British Empire at some of its most bloody periods. And so because of that, what that meant was that it was also pro-Israel and pro-Zionism, pro the Zionist movement before Israel even existed. And it, in a lot of ways, it was more pro-Zionism than the Conservative Party. So, you know, and that was part of the same part and parcel whereby it supported settler colonial movements around the world. So, for example, there was, I mean, there's one really infamous quote, which I get into in the book, but I, I can just say it here briefly, which was that there was a, a leading Labour Party MP called Richard Crossman, who was actually considered, and he was later a minister, in late 50s, early 60s, I think. And he, I mean, he was considered to be part of the Labour Party left at the time, but he was incredibly pro-Empire. And in particular, in particular, he was very pro-Israel. And there's a really infamous part of a book that he wrote. I mean, it was really a speech that he gave in Israel in the early 50s, or in the late 50s, actually, 1959. And it was the text of that speech. And in that speech and in the book, he bemoans the fact that the indigenous people of Palestine, the Palestinians, didn't accept, you know, they, they didn't like the idea that they'd be kicked out of their homes to make way for a Jewish state. And he talked about the white man, quote unquote, essentially the European settlers in Africa and the Americas, and he compared them to Israel favorably. And he said that, quote, no one until the 20th century seriously challenged their right or indeed their duty this is they being the white man, right? To civilize these continents by physically occupying them, even at the cost of wiping out the Aboriginal population. I mean, it's a really kind of shocking quote. He also said that, he also bemoaned the fact that the Palestinian intelligentsia, you know, didn't like this. <laughs> and he sort of said that they should have accepted it. Well, he says that, to quote, the intelligentsia began to regard the Middle East as the Palestinian intelligentsia, what you would have called the Arabs, began to regard the Middle East as the classic pattern of Leninist imperial exploitation. And in that imperial exploitation, he's putting it in scare quotes. And so, you know, this is someone from the left of the Labour Party, ostensibly. And so, yeah, the Labour Party was very, very pro-Israel before that, very pro-Zionism. There's one biographer of a, a Labour minister from the 1940s, Hugh Dalton. Hugh Dalton was the, the finance minister after 1945. You know, he brought in all these wonderful policies. I'm not saying that sarcastically of, you know, the National Health Service and great things for this country, but then had this colonial, really racist vision for the rest of the world. And his biographer, Hugh Dalton's biographer, is a really interesting read because he says that he had his vision, Hugh Dalton's vision for the Middle East was, quote, Zionism plus plus. So before Israel was founded in 1945 with the expulsion of the Palestinians, Hugh Dalton had wanted not only Palestine to become a Jewish state, but he wanted to, quote, throw open Libya or Eritrea to Jewish settlement as satellites or colonies to Palestine. So he wanted a, a kind of greater Israel in a way. And, you know, this wasn't for any love of Jewish people. No way. Like, he was he was a racist. And he was explicitly anti-Semitic as well. You know, I, I quote some of it in the book. I won't say it. He uses the N-word. He used the N-word and he used an equivalent word which was more popular than the N-word in Britain. Starts with a W. I also won't say that. And he also used 
an anti-Semitic slur as well for one of the Labour Party ministers. And so, you know, he was racist, he was anti-Semitic, and his support was for Zionism was premised on all this kind of racist ideology. And why was that? Well, you know, obviously he didn't want, as a racist and an anti-Semite, he didn't want Jews around him in the same way he didn't want black people and Arabs around him. And so Zionism was convenient for that because the idea of Zionism was to, always was and still is, is to remove Jews from their native countries, whether that's Europe or Middle Eastern countries or wherever, and then, you know, force them, push them or encourage them in whatever way to become settlers in Palestine. And that's what Zionism did. And so, you know, anti-Semites and Zionists worked hand in hand in that way. Now, despite how how ridiculous and absurd this whole argument is that Jeremy Corbyn is anti-Semitic, that opposition to the state of Israel is itself a form of racism, as ridiculous as all of that is, and, and despite the best efforts of a lot of people in Britain who stood up and disagreed with this and spoke out against this smear campaign, I mean, they did effectively succeed. I mean, right now, Jeremy Corbyn is effectively expelled from the Labour Party. How did this all end up shaking out, playing out? Yeah, there's two points to this, two prongs to this. So first of all, Corbyn was pushed out of the Labour Party. As I mentioned before, he's now an independent MP, so I'll, I'll get to that. But the second prong is the fact that, and to me, it's more, almost more important in a way, the movement behind him, the popular movement, was also driven out of the Labour Party. So I'll come to the first point, but just to address the second point, first of all. So as I mentioned at the beginning, the way Corbyn was elected in the first place was only because of people power. And that involved this massive enthusiasm, you know, this groundswell of 200,000 people entering the Labour Party. And that happened in large part because of the fact that Jeremy Corbyn had been involved in all these different popular movements for so many years. So, you know, these anti-imperialist movements that we've mentioned, the anti-war movement, the Palestine Solidarity Movement, but also other causes, anti-racism, you know, support for refugees, environmental causes, against austerity, against government cuts and spending, the workers' movement, supporting strikes. You know, he's, he's on picket lines all the time at the moment. You know, you see him on his social media. He's always out supporting travel workers, teachers, nurses, everybody, the working class in general. And so because of that, because Corbyn was so well known among those circles, there was a ready, unified kind of mass movement ready to re-enter enter or re-enter the Labour Party. And it, was, it wasn't just like activists, quote unquote. It was became a popular movement, popular mass movement in the country. Young people. I mean, I saw it myself once. Very famously, there was this case of the Glastonbury Music Festival, which is the biggest music festival in Britain. I think probably one of the biggest in Europe. And it's held in a field and there was a field of several hundred thousand people. And the organiser of Glastonbury Music Festival brought Jeremy Corbyn on stage. Well, you can't imagine any other politician being brought on stage at Glastonbury and being greeted positively. But they were literally chanting his name and singing his name as if from the football terraces, the soccer terraces. I mean, I was at my sister's birthday party in South Wales in 2017 and people just start, all of a sudden people just started chanting, oh, Jeremy Corbyn. It was all these young people in their 20s and early 30s. People were just chanting, oh, Jeremy Corbyn. And it was, I didn't have anything to do with it. It just came from, 
it was this mass spontaneous movement. It was really, in a lot of ways, a really beautiful time to be alive. And there was this mass movement and it was it was crushed. You know, this is the real tragedy. It was really crushed, defeated, driven out of the Labour Party. And now the Labour Party is back to the establishment, neoliberalism, and having very few differences with the ruling Conservative Party. And that all started when Corbyn was still in power because, as I said, as I said he didn't have control of the bureaucracy. But what happened to Corbyn himself? So he was suspended. So first of all, he participated in two general elections. So there was a, it was a period of 2016 to 2019 was a period of general political upheaval in Britain. And there was lots of different governments that were in place, conservative governments. There were several conservative prime ministers. There was a vote. There was a referendum, a national referendum on whether or not Britain wanted to stay in the European Union. And there was a narrow vote in favour of leaving the European Union. And because of all this political turmoil, there was several general elections within the short space of a few years. And so that meant that Corbyn participated and led the Labour Party through two general elections, 2017 and 2019. Now, due in large part to the internal sabotage against Corbyn from his own MPs, many of whom were who were pro-Israel, and his own bureaucracy, especially in 2017, also in 2019. Because of all that sabotage, he lost both of those elections. But in 2017, he actually performed very well, and he came very, very close to winning the election and becoming prime minister. You know, one analysis has it that he came within a few thousand votes of becoming prime minister and forming a, he would have had to have formed uh, some sort of coalition government, but he would have at least had a chance to do it. So, you know, that was considered a great victory for him, although it wasn't an outright victory, didn't become prime minister. It meant that he had a chance because he could build on that victory for the next election. And it was a defeat, a defeat for the ruling Conservative Party in a lot of ways because it reduced their majority in Parliament, whereas they were hoping to increase their majority. And they had only a very narrow majority in the first place. And it was actually reduced and it meant they had to go into coalition with the sectarian extremists in the north of Ireland, the loyalists there, the DUP. So essentially what all this meant was... Bottom line, at the end of the day, you know, I get into the history of it in the book, but in 2019, Jeremy Corbyn did lose the election. And so after that, because of that loss, the second loss, he quit. He announced that he was quitting as a Labour Party leader. You know, he'd been under this massive amount of pressure to leave all along. You know, I think it was there was a, a big, probably emotional and certainly physical and mental toll on him being harassed at his house every day by journalists in a way, by mainstream journalists, in, in a way that they don't do for other politicians. And this massive smear campaign against him, which must have been taken a very big personal toll of being misrepresented and smeared as an anti-Semite and so forth. And so I think due to all of this and the general election loss, he quit. And so that, that meant he was no longer leader. And then there was an election, an internal party election to replace him. Well, a few months later, there was a report, a government body called the Equality and Human Rights Commission had launched an investigation into the Labour Party due to all these allegations of anti-Semitism. Now, this body, the Equality and Human Rights Commission, has come under a lot of pressure 
and a lot of criticism because it is not really an independent body. It's quite pro-conservative and it doesn't seem to take racism seriously. You know, there's been complaints against it by some of its own black staff members and so forth. But the more salient point for our purposes is that the Equality and Human Rights Commission only put this investigation into place at the behest of pro-Israel groups, at the behest of the Israel lobby in Britain, namely an organisation called the Campaign Against Antisemitism and the Jewish Labour Movement, which I mentioned earlier. Now, the Jewish Labour Movement was incredibly close to the Israeli embassy in London. When it was revived in 2015, it was led by two people who were very close to the Israeli embassy. One of them, Jeremy Newmark, was a career Israel lobbyist who'd worked closely with the government of Israel for many years on tackling the Palestine Solidarity Movement and attacking the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. And the second person who was their full-time director was a young woman called Ella Rose, who was actually working in the Israeli embassy. She was an Israeli embassy officer who was hired out of that job, poached from that job by Jeremy Newmark, to work for the Jewish labor movement. So that's one pro-Israel lobby group. The other one was called the Campaign Against Antisemitism, which is really a campaign against Palestinians. You know, it it claims to be essentially an anti-racist group, but all of its reports and campaigning, you can do an analysis on their website, and we have done this at the Electronic Intifada. The overwhelming majority of the things that it campaigns on was against the Labour Party, it was against Palestine Solidarity, it was against the left. There was only a very few small number of posts on its website where it even mentioned the far right at all. So it was not really a campaign against anti-Semitism, it was a campaign against Palestine Solidarity, against Palestinians and against the left. Both of these two Israel lobby groups filed this complaint with the EHRC, Equality and Human Rights Commission, for what they claimed and alleged was, quote, institutional anti-Semitism in the Labour Party. That complaint then, while Corbyn was still leader, triggered this investigation. So this investigation concluded after Corbyn was quit as leader of the Labour Party. But obviously, while he was still in the leadership, it put a massive amount of pressure on it. It increased the pressure, you know, it was more negative press coverage, which meant that the Labour Party under Corbyn couldn't get its progressive policies talked about in the media. You know, it was a distraction from all of that. Well, when it concluded, the whole claim of institutional anti-Semitism was suddenly dropped and disappeared. No one was mentioned. No one mentioned it. You know, there was no mention of it at all in the document, either one way or the other. It was all suddenly dropped because obviously they knew that they couldn't conclude that because there's no evidence of it. It was a load of rubbish all along. Nonetheless, they brought up these two cases, and one of them was Ken Livingstone, and they claimed that those were cases of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party that had broken the law. Now, both of those cases are going to be challenged in, in the British court system, and hopefully that should be coming soon. But the upshot of it, the main outcome of it, was the expulsion of Jeremy Corbyn, because what happened was they issued this report, and then Corbyn responded he issued a statement responding to it now in my view his response didn't go far enough it was far too timid and he even accepted the report and said it should be implemented which i disagree with myself i think it was a deeply flawed document leading human rights lawyer jeffrey byman qc has also said that it's a deeply flawed document which won't stand up in court nonetheless corby did accept it but he also said that 
you know, despite the fact there was anti-Semitism, its scale was exaggerated by our political enemies inside the party and outside of it. And, you know, that was just factual. That was just a matter of fact. You know, it was proven time and time again. The number of allegations of anti-Semitism, even the allegations, even if you took all the allegations of anti-Semitism and said they were all valid, which is absolutely not the case, but just for the sake of argument, say you did, it would still mean that it was less than 1%. I mean, it was a fraction of a fraction of, of 1% of compared to the membership of the Labour Party, the number of allegations of anti-Semitism. And so, you know, it was vastly exaggerated because there was this constant obsessive mainstream media coverage about it as a way to get rid of Corbyn. So that was a fact. But nonetheless, then Corbyn's statement saying that fact led to another outroar, uproar, and he was then kicked out of the party. He was expelled from the Labour Party. That expulsion was o- overturned. I mean, the expulsion then meant that he wouldn't be a Labour MP, he would be an, an independent MP. The expulsion as a member was overturned after Corbyn kind of half-heartedly didn't quite apologise, but he, he kind of backpedaled a little bit, even from the timid statement. But And then after that, he was expected to be readmitted. Well, he was readmitted as a member, as a normal member of the Labour Party, but the leader of the Labour Party, Keir Starmer, who's this right-winger who's now leading the Labour Party, and has declared himself to be, quote, a supporter of Zionism without qualifications. So, you know, he's this... I mean, he's really a shill for the Israel lobby is what he is because he's actually received campaign funding from a prominent pro-Israel lobby financier, Trevor Chin. So... What happened was that because of that, Keir Starmer said that Jeremy Corbyn would not receive the whip back, which is this parliamentary jargon to mean that, you know, he he will never become a Labour MP again, essentially, that he's not going to become a Labour MP again. Even if he is a Labour, technically a Labour Party member, he's not going to be a Labour Party MP. And that was three years ago, or nearly three years ago. And Keir Starmer by now has made it very clear that when the next general election comes in Islington North, which is Jeremy Corbyn's constituency and his seat in Parliament, there will be a Labour Party candidate and that Labour Party candidate will not be Jeremy Corbyn. So if Jeremy Corbyn wants to retain his seat, he's going to have to do something which would have been previously unthinkable to him, which is run against the Labour Party. Whether he does that as an independent or starts a new party, in one way or another, he's going to have to run against the Labour Party because the Labour Party under Keir Starmer, which is now thoroughly, thoroughly pro-Israel, is never going to have Jeremy Corbyn as its candidate again. And so that's really the position he's in right now. Well, this is an extremely important story, extremely important history to study. There's a lot more to this story, too. I highly encourage everyone to check out Asa Wynn Stanley's book, Weaponizing Anti-Semitism, How the Israel Lobby Brought Down Jeremy Corbyn. You can buy that from OR Books at orbooks.com. Asa Wynn Stanley is a journalist who writes for the Electronic Intifada and on Substack at asawinstanley.substack.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by subscribing on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Socialist Program. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. 
If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. 